So the Baal Shem Tov explains that God said, let there be Aleph, Vav, Resh. That's what God, God didn't say let there be light. Because the word light doesn't make any sense at all. What's light mean? So really, it's like, you know how obedient the world is to God? Do you know how powerful God's will is? He said, let there be light, and there was. Isn't that amazing? What's amazing is, God wanted something that is bright. So he said, let there be light, and something bright came out. That is amazing. Because when God said, let there be light, what did the word light mean? In whose language? In whose language does the word light mean something bright? Huh? So when we say it obeyed, God said, let there be light, and there was light. I'm not surprised that it obeyed. I'm surprised that it knew what to do. I mean, if God came to you and said, bazoos, what would you do? You would do it, right? I mean, after all, you, you always obey God. But what would you do? The word doesn't mean anything. So what did the word, you know, what was the value of a word that had no sense? So even when we translate it, you had a King James Version. What, and God said, let there be light. No, he didn't. The word light doesn't mean anything. He might as well have said, let there be nothing. And the same thing would have happened because the word nothing and the word light mean equally nothing. God didn't say, let there be light. God said, let there be Aleph Vav Resh. What is Aleph Vav Resh? Light. <laughs> Not the word means light. Aleph. It's like saying, let there be H2O. Guess what's going to happen? You're going to have water. So that's amazing. He said H2O, and the result is water. That's right. Because if he would have said water, nobody would have known what he's talking about. Because what's water? So instead of saying, let there be light, and it means nothing to anybody, God said, let there be olive of resh. What's olive of resh? A brightness. But the letters, Aleph, Vav, Resh, are the code that describes that behavior pattern. Not a name for it. In other words, if you were a very holy person, you could take the Aleph, the Vav, and the Resh, and you could create light. That's why the names that Torah gives for different objects is not Hebrew language. It's not a language. The name Alevav Resh is not a title given to a thing that is bright. The Alevav Resh is the brightness. It is the ingredients that make brightness. Of course, as long as we know that, then why give brightness a name 
and just hang a tag on it, say Aleph Vav Resh. Then you're really saying it. Now we have a little bit deeper insight. The sage said to his students, he who told oil to burn will tell vinegar to burn. Really? What's oil? Who told oil to burn? And if God said, oil, burn, whose name is oil? Nobody's. He who told Shin Mem Nun to burn will tell Ches Mem Tzadik to burn. Then another thing. God brought all living things, all existence before Adam and said, what is this thing's name? And Adam gave it names. And God went back to the angels and he said, you see, I asked you to come with me to create people and you said, no, they're stupid. What are they people for? What do they know? Angels. That's something. But human beings? What are you human beings for? So God said, I will show you that their wisdom is greater than yours. How did he show them that the wisdom of man is greater than the wisdom of angels? When Adam named everything. So then God went back to the angels and said, you see? What's the great wisdom? God brought a lion in front of Adam and said, what's its name? He said, lion. Brilliant. <laughs> Where's the Chachma? Anybody could do that. Take a little kid in kindergarten and say, make up a name for this. I'll make up a name. What's the problem? This is greater than the wisdom of the angels? Because we're not talking about a language. Anybody can make up a language. They can make up names for things. When God came and said, what is its name? God was saying, look at it and tell me what it comes from. Take a look at light and see if you can understand where it comes from. He says, yes, from Aleph Vav Resh. Angels don't know that. And then God brought a lion in front of him and said, do you understand what this thing is? He said, sure, it's an Aleph Resh Yud. If you took a kid out of kindergarten and you showed him a glass of water and he said, what is this? And he said, oh, that's H2O. You'd be pretty impressed. And even H2O means nothing. Because the word hydrogen is only a tag. You could have called it anything. There'd be nothing wrong with calling hydrogen oxygen and calling oxygen hydrogen. What difference would it make? As long as you got the right proportions. But in creation, if you take the Aleph out of the Ari, out of the lion, and put in a base, that's it. There's no more lion. You've just undone the whole thing. You've created something else.
if you take the olive out of light and you put in an ayin, hmm? or blindness. If you put an aleph into golus, what do you get? After the vav. <laughs> if you add an aleph to golus, you get geulus. Or if you add an aleph to gola, you get geula. So with one yeah, so with one letter you change the whole existence. Huh? This is I'm getting back to Pre-electron, <laughs> yeah. I get pre-electron is behavior behavior pattern. Pre-behavior pattern is God's letters. Get back behind God's letters. There's God's will. So if he, yeah. So if he wants, he can make the other letters burn. In the Haggadah, when it says, what should you do to your wicked son? What does it say to do to the wicked son? Knock out his, knock out his shin. Hakeya shinov. Knock out his shin. The word rasha has a shin in it. Resh, shin, ayin. What should you do to a Russia? Knock out the shin. When you knock out the shin, then the letters that are left have no have no validity. What gives evil its validity is when you throw in a shin among it. Because shin is a valid letter. Raish and ayin are are in simple the resh has only one leg and the ayin has only one leg. A resh and an ayin can't stand. So how does a Russia manage? He throws in a little bit of truth. Just like sheker. Sheker means false. Sheker also has a, has a shin. Without the shin, you have a kuf and a resh. They can't stand. They have only one foot each. So when you take the shin out of sheker, you destroy it. When you take the shin out of the Russia, there's nothing left. Pure Ra is nothing. So the letters 
actually have a very powerful role in creation. Not that, not that the letters create. Let's not, get, let's not get this mistake. That's why he said that he who says that Shin Mem Nun should burn can also tell Ches Mem Tzadik to burn. But then it's a miracle. Nature means when Shin Mem Nun burns. But the light that he's talking about in Bereshis, and the reason that light was the first thing God created is because in light, whatever that is, we don't know what light is, but whatever light is, that's the transition from nothingness into somethingness. And from there, you can develop more things with greater mass or with some mass, because light has no mass at all. Chaos is actually, I mean, on the one hand, we say chaos is terrible. Chaos is bad, you know, stay away from it. But actually, chaos means when, when things are so strong, when everything is so powerful that, that it, it can't be contained. That's chaos. When a person gets so excited that he can't put it into words, that's chaos. So in the beginning of creation, the first 10 minutes, let's say, it was so intense that nothing, nothing could, could work. Everything was just too intense. When God said, let there be light, he slowed down the chaos. He said, calm down. Everything is going to find its place. Everything is going to have a place. Everything will have an order. It won't be chaos anymore. But every creation, for some reason, begins in chaos. Conception, for example. At the moment of conception, it's total chaos. Everything is jumbled together. It's, it's, it's just, it's very intense excitement, very intense energy, but the details have no shape. They're all jumbled together. It's chaos. And it has to be that way, because all things begin at a point, and in that point, you have to have all the details that will come later. This chaos can't last. It destroys itself. Just like a person who gets very excited about Yiddishkeit. Too excited. And it's chaos. It must eventually stop. It can't go on. It destroys itself. But nothing is wasted. This energy that was once chaos collapses. It burns itself up. But then the energy becomes the under ground, the under, the foundation of the orderly and normal world. So what started at the beginning as chaos couldn't last, and it broke, it exploded, and the energy of it ended up being the lowest physical thing in the world.
for example. A person experiences an emotional, an emotional upheaval. And the emotion is so strong that it, it creates chaos. So a little bit of that chaos energy wants to come out in thought. You're trying to think, but, but the energy is too great, so you can't think. Or you can only think a little bit. So then the energy wants to come out in words. You want to say something. You want to scream. You, but nothing. Or if it comes out, it comes out. So you want to go do something. You want to write it down. You want to make a phone call. You can't. So what happens? What happens? You cry. And, and, and what is that? This energy that couldn't come out in thought, and it couldn't come out in words, and it couldn't come out in action, comes out in a, in a drop of tears in a thing. Because the more intense the energy is, the lower it falls. It can't be expressed in a thought because thought is too high. Can't be expressed in words, still too high. Can't even be expressed in action, still too complicated. It can only express itself in the least complicated thing, least complex thing. So it expresses itself in a silly tear. And that carries more energy than your words and your thoughts and your actions can carry. From the chaos, you get stones. From the chaos, you get the body of a Jew, not his soul. Because the higher it is, the lower it falls. So when we take physical objects and we use them to do a mitzvah with it, it's not just taking a dumb thing and making it useful, giving it a godly purpose. In that dumb thing is the energy that couldn't go into anything else because it was too intense. And it had to go into the dumbest thing around, into a stone, into a dollar bill. And that's why we eat we who are so complicated and complex and sophisticated and all sorts of things, in order that we should be able to sit here and learn mystical concepts, we first have to eat a carrot. We first have to drink water. And this dumb water is going to give us the energy to be human. That's why it says, it is not on bread, man does not live on bread alone. What's the end of that verse? Man doesn't live on bread alone. Man lives on the word of, of God. So what kind of comparison is this? What's the bread have to do with God's word? Man lives on the word of God that is in the bread. It's not the bread alone. It's the word of God that's in the bread. That's what gives us our energy. But why do we need the word of God that's in the bread? What about the word of God that's in me? I was also, I'm also God's creation. So God created me also with his word. 
So what do I need the word in the bread or in the carrots or in the seaweed? What's, what's wrong with the word in me? The answer is this energy that came from the world of chaos, from the state of chaos, fell into the lowest things so that the energy that's in the carrot is higher than the energy that God put into me. And the carrot is, doesn't have the most energy. Water has more because water is lower than carrots. Carrots are plants. Water is inorganic. So that even the carrot needs water. And water doesn't need anything. Because there's nothing that can feed water. So when we use physical objects to do mitzvahs with, we're actually doing two things. We're taking the dumb object and giving it some purpose. On the other hand, at the same time, we are taking the highest energy that couldn't express itself in anything but a dumb object, and we're bringing it back to God. That's called elevating the sparks. Within the human being, there are also higher things and lower things. Intelligence is higher than emotions. Faith is higher than intelligence. The lowest thing in a human being, not talking about his body, in the human, in the, in the character of a human being, the lowest thing in the human character is obedience. That's why even a child can obey. He doesn't want to, but he can. Because obedience takes no talent. You don't have to be a mensch to be obedient. You don't have to be smart, you don't have to be fine, you don't have to be noble, you don't have to be anything. Obedience is the dumbest thing a person can do. So within, within the human uh, character, obedience is like the stone in the world, in the physical world. It is the lowest object in, the physical, in a human being. Therefore, in that, there's a spark that is higher than faith. So listening really means obedience. I would say, you're not listening to me. It means you're not obeying me. But there's the act of listening, which means simply to allow the words into your ears. But that's not part of your character. That's just a physical thing. The character begins whether you're allowing what I'm saying to affect you. Now, it can affect you emotionally, it can affect you intellectually, it can affect you religiously, or it can affect you simply. You heard what I said and you did it. You don't understand what I said, you don't care for what I said, you don't like what I said, you don't believe in what I said, but you did it. 
you obeyed. So that intense part of God that cannot be contained in a thought or in a word or in an act can be, can be contained in obedience or in our stone. That which we can't handle th through our complexity, we can handle in our simplicity. That which we can't do by trying, we can do by not trying. when a chassid comes to the Rebbe's secretary and says, um, I'd like to go uh, do some work for Lubavitch. I want to work for the Rebbe, go to Upsa City and start a Chabad house or something. He's never asked, what can you do? What are your talents? What are you good at? That's never asked. One time, Somebody went into Rabbi Kharikov and said, I'd like to go on a shlichus, I'd like to go out and work for the Rebbe, because I'm a very good organizer. So Rabbi Kharikov said to him, an organizer? I'm not sure we need an organizer. He said, I'm not sure we need an organizer. So he said, well, I see other people go out and they don't know anything. They can't do anything. So uh, if they can go, so certainly, I mean, I'm, I'm at least good at something. So Rabbi Kharikov said to him, if you're good at something, then that's all you're good for. When you're not good at anything, then you can do everything. The person who has a concrete picture of what he is and what he can do, well, then that's all. That's it. That's what, that's what he can do. So if we happen to not need an organizer, then you're out of the picture. Then you're finished. Because you are an organizer. Well, we may not need an organizer. Maybe we need a teacher. Maybe we need a, 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 a mikveh builder. <laughs> Maybe we need somebody to, to go to the cows to make sure that the milk is whole of Israel. <laughs> so when you come and you say, can I go out and run a Chabad office? I'm an organizer. Running a Chabad office means organizing. Who knows what it's going to mean? Or if a guy would come along and say, can I go, uh, I'm a good speaker. Well, if we needed a speaker, maybe. But I don't know if we need a speaker. You have to go to the city and find out what the city is going to need. Maybe they won't need a speaker. So you'll, you'll come back. <laughs> so forget it. You don't, you, you're not good at anything. Then you're perfect. Because then you'll do whatever has to be done. But if you think you're good at something, then that's all you're going to do. And if they should need something else, you'll say, tough, I'm sorry, I'm a speaker. You need somebody to build a mikveh? I'm sorry. Somebody has to raise money? I'm not into that. So then you're not a representative. 
You can be a hired hand if they happen to need that kind of... But to be a representative in a city, to be a representative in a city, you have to be able to do whatever is going to need to be done. And who knows what that is? So sometimes, what we can't do with our sophistication, we can accomplish with our simplicity. The Fidikeb's father once needed something done from the government, some political improvement for Jews in Russia. And he sent one of the smartest, most talented, um, most capable Hasidim, and they knocked on all the doors of all the ministers, and they got nowhere. They came back, and they said they didn't succeed. The Rebbe was very upset. Tried a second time, didn't work. Finally, not having any alternative, they sent a Hasid who was a very simple man. He said he would go, he would try. He sees the Rebbe's upset, he's going to go try. He goes to Moscow, to Leningrad, wherever, to St. Petersburg. He arrives there, he doesn't know what to do. He was never in such a big city before. <laughs> He's afraid of, 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 uh, of the size of the city. He doesn't, know what to, he doesn't know where to go, what to do, he doesn't know anything. So he goes into a, um, into a tavern and uh, orders a drink. And he sits down by the table he starts crying. He starts crying because the Rebbe is upset. This thing has to get done. He doesn't know what to do. So he starts crying. Sitting next to him is another guy having a drink. And he says to him, hey, what's the matter? What are you crying? So he tells him the whole story. Simple. He says, I'm a chassid of the Rebbe. The Rebbe is so upset. It's bothering me. And I came here to do something. And I don't even know what to do. I didn't even know who to talk to. So the man says, what is it that has to be done? He says, well, I have to fix something in the, in the, in the Department of Education. But I don't even know who to talk to. He says, talk to me. I'm the Minister of Education. <laughs> and the man was so impressed with his sincerity, he said, I'll see what I can do for you. And he fixed it. <laughs> so what... <laughs> What the smart chassid and the capable chassid couldn't get an appointment with him. This guy went and he sat down and he cried. Because he wanted very much to help and, and he didn't know how to help. And that was effective. Had he been smart and had he known what office to go to and which secretary to ask for an appointment, he would have been turned away. So going back to the original description, what does it mean God created the world? It means that God makes a world behave, makes a behavior that we see as a world, but real in, in reality, even according to scientists, the world is 
the appearance of that which cannot be seen. The appearance of that which cannot be seen. In other words, the world is basically nothing, but it appears this way. So what is this appearance? A figment of our imagination? No. An expression of God's will. So when you see a tree, what is it? It's an expression of God's will. You see a mountain, it's an expression of God's will. You see a river, it's an expression of God's will. If it wasn't finite, then we would see God, not, not the thing. Finite means that this appearance does not reveal God. If it wasn't finite, it would reveal God, because that's what it is. It is. It's an expression of God's will. So how come it doesn't remind us of God? Because it's finite. All this leads us to a very important conclusion. Not only that God is and nothing else is, which is important enough in itself. If, if the world is a behavior pattern, responding constantly to God's will, and God is constantly willing the world into existence, is it then possible that something is going on somewhere in the world and God doesn't know about it? Can't be. Because if the thing is going on, that means that God is willing it to happen, willing it to be. If God is willing it to be, how can he not know what's going on? So what does divine providence mean? That God watches? That's silly. What do you mean he watches? He sits on the balcony and he watches what's going on. Divine providence means that energy that God is putting into this thing right now to make it what it is. That's divine providence. Divine providence is not God watching a thing. Divine providence means the fact that God is making that thing right now. Uh, so the first time God made it, we called it creation. Since then, when he keeps making it over and over and over, we don't call it creation, we call it Hashgacha Pratis. It's a new name. Sometimes it's more obvious. In Eretz Yisrael, it's more obvious. Always. Because, because it's holier. The place is holier. So in Eretz Yisrael, that God's involvement in every detail is much more obvious. So God's involvement in the detail, what should we call that? You can call it God creating the world over and over and over. You can call it miracles, or you can call it divine providence. Not that there's no ness. Everything is a ness. Yes, so there is no ness. That's right. So 
That is Hashgacha Pratis. Hashgacha Pratis means that there isn't a single detail in the physical world that God isn't right now involved with. The difference, the difference is that when you say Hashgacha Pratis, then you're avoiding a possible mistake. If you say God is creating, so again, people have always had problems. What do you mean he's creating? He created once, now he's not creating. Or if he created, he creates He creates in generalities. He created people. Now each individual person, God doesn't have to create, he created people. When we say Hashgacha Pratis, we're saying that every individual detail, every human being, not just mankind, every little creature, not just animals, and even within each creature, every atom that exists in that, per in that being, God has to be creating now. That's Hashgacha Prati, not Chloe. It's not that God is keeping the existence going. It's not a general thing. It's, a, it's an individual thing. Every individual thing happens only by Hashgacha Prati. Where if you said creation, it would mean the same thing, but not everybody would know that. Because creation sounds more general. Sometimes you see it, sometimes you don't, but it's always there. That's right. But Bria Sa'olam, you don't get excited about it because you don't see it. It happened, it happened a long time ago, and now you don't see it. When do you see it? When something happens to reveal it. And then people say, Hashgah HaPratis. Mazel Tov. Of course, everything's Hashgah HaPratis. Now you saw it. Very nice. It's a nice experience. It's all divine providence. To turn it into light. Because everything must eventually become good, including evil. Yes. Yeah. And that's why in the Baal Shem Tov's teachings, this idea that God has to create the world constantly and the idea of Hashgacha Pratis are very... They're not two separate things. One brings the other. One is the other. Let me give an example of what Hashgacha Pratis means. Down south, for the last couple of weeks or months, there's been a terrible drought and incredible heat. In, in, in North Carolina, South Carolina, if you take a shower for more than four minutes, you can get a fine. Because there's no water. The farmers who planted, obviously their crops are in bad, bad shape. Now suppose that tomorrow, 
God decides to have pity on these farmers, and it starts to rain through the entire Bible Belt. So all the farmers, who are basically religious people, farmers are religious people, so the farmers will all run off to their houses of worship to thank God for the rain. Now one of the farmers is going to be sitting there, and he's going to be saying, God, thank you very much for the kindness you have shown me and my family by me. And all of a sudden he thinks to himself, wait a minute, what am I, crazy? God did me a favor to make it rain? He didn't do me a favor. It's raining all over the place. As a matter of fact, my farm is right in between two other farms. So I should thank God because it rained on my farm. It didn't rain on my farm. God caused it to rain in Carolinas. In the Carolinas. Maybe he caused it to rain because this is a good guy and because that's a good guy. But who says he made it rain for me? So what am I thanking him for? I'm in the middle. If it rained on my neighbor to the right and my neighbor to the left, so automatically my fields got wet. But who says it was for me? So what do I have to thank him? That's called Hashkacha Chloe. Chloe. He knows that it doesn't rain unless God makes it rain. He knows that rain doesn't come by itself. And so when it rains, he, he recognizes and admits that God now made it rain. Things don't happen by themselves. But to say that I have to personally thank God for making it rain on my field, no, my field it rained on automatically. Because if it's raining to the east and it's raining to the west, so of course my field got wet. But why do I have to thank him? And the same is true with almost anything. I have to thank God that, 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 that America allows Jews to practice their religion. Well, it's a favor to me. In general, America lets people do what they want. But how can I, call, how can I see that as a personal favor that God did to me? It's not just to me. Any Jew can do it. So what's so special about me? More than that. The person, the farmer in the middle who is going to thank God for the rain on his field is terribly arrogant. Incredibly arrogant. What is he saying? Even though it was raining to the right and it was raining to the left, but if God didn't want to do me a favor, it wouldn't rain in the middle. What, God would create a miracle? God would create a miracle just to not have it rain on your field? But that's a terrible mistake. <coughs> it wouldn't be a miracle if it rained to the right and it rained to the left and not on you. 
just like the person says, the fact that it's raining must be coming from God. Things don't happen by themselves. If things don't happen by themselves, then what do you mean? If it rains all around me, it has to rain on me too. It has to? Who says it has to? Hashgacha Pratis says that no detail would happen unless God wants that detail. Hashgacha in general says God wants it to rain in this vicinity. Therefore, everything that's in this vicinity will get wet. Hashgacha Prati says, no, it's not true. God can want it to rain in this vicinity, but one detail in the vicinity doesn't get wet. Because on that detail, he didn't want. So if that detail gets wet, it's because God wants that detail to get wet. There's no such thing as general Hashgacha. Hashgacha has to be a Prati. That's why the Baal Shem Tov said that when a leaf that's lying on the ground is carried from one place to another by a wind, that is by divine plan. God wanted specifically that this leaf should be carried from here to there. A person can say, you know, that's going a little too far. That's getting ridiculous already. I also believe in God. I also believe that there's nothing besides God. But why do you have to have God get so petty? God created trees. And on trees there are leaves. And God created the autumn. In the autumn, leaves fall off the tree. And God created winds. And God tells the wind where to blow and when to blow. All right? So, God created the tree, God created the leaf, God made the leaf fall off the tree, God created the wind, God makes the wind blow, God told the wind to blow on that street where he put a leaf. That's not enough? The answer is no, it's not enough. Because wind doesn't carry leaves. Unless God wants a wind to carry a leaf. Say, so wait a minute. If God already put the leaf there, and he already put the wind there, so then automatically the wind will carry... No, there's no automatically. There's no automatic. You're talking about a world that is basically nothing. So in this nothing, things happen automatic. Nothing happens automatic. And that's what the Baal Shem Tov introduced that had not been known before. It's not that God forbid before the Baal Shem Tov, all Jewish thinkers and all religious people didn't know that there was Hashgacha. They thought that winds come by themselves. Everybody knew that the wind doesn't come unless God says the wind should come. And everybody knew that there's no such thing as a leaf that God didn't create. But given these two ingredients, what else do you need? God makes the wind blow and God created the leaf. So when the wind blows on the leaf, that's it, it moves. No, no, that's it. Even if the wind is there and the leaf is there, if God doesn't want the leaf, not, not if he wants it not to, if he doesn't will it, that the wind should carry the leaf from here to there, then the leaf will not be carried. 
Yeah, but, but there's a wind blowing. The wind will blow on everything else, but not on this leaf. People who go to war learn this very intensely, intimately. Because if you talk about war in generalities, like Hashgacha, Chloe, if you're attacked and you're outnumbered and you're surrounded and they shell you, you're dead. That's the rule. Every soldier that ever came back from war will tell you that we were t attacked, we were surrounded, we were shelled, everybody died except me. I don't know why, I don't know how. Because there are no general rules in the world. There are only specific rules in the world. In a time when a plague is going around. It's a plague. Everybody's getting, not everybody gets sick. No? <clears throat> the thing is that the one person who doesn't get sick, we say, oh, that's Hashgacha. See that? God protected him that he shouldn't get sick. What about all the people who did get sick? Oh, they just got sick because there's a plague going around. <laughs> no. Nobody gets sick because there's a plague going around. You get sick only if that's what God intended should happen to you. 